Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The centre of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paulo those people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources, and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good night, whatever time of the day it is, Project Kazimierz listener. This is Richard Lucas, and I've got a very special guest on the show today, Mel Rosenberg, who I believe is in the fine city of Tel Aviv in Israel. Is that correct, Mel? Um, Well, actually, I'm in Ramat Gan, which is really close. It's like a neighbor city. Um, Rather than me try to introduce you, could you introduce yourself the way you would if someone met you at a social engagement or a party and asked you that wonderful question, uh, what do you do? Well, if I were speaking in third person, I would say Mel is a very confused individual. He um, sometimes thinks he's a scientist and inventor, other times a teacher. Um, Sometimes he thinks he's a jazz musician and singer. Uh, but what he really is, is a storyteller, particularly of children's stories. Okay, well, that's, that's quite, quite, a, quite, a varied, um, quite a varied introduction. As, as I've told you, the main thrust of this uh, podcast is innovation and entrepreneurship. So that's what we're going to focus on. And I know you've had a history as an entrepreneur, although at the moment I would see you more of a social organizational entrepreneur Rather than a rather than a business entrepreneur, but um, perhaps you could. We'll start in the present for now and work back. What, what's your current situation in life? What are you doing right now? Okay, so my day job, I work at Shankar College, which is a college of engineering and design and fine arts in Israel. It's a fine college with about three thousand students. So I manage a, an innovation center called the Keter Center for Innovation, uh, and I teach classes a course called um, How to Deal with the, um, with the Digital Future. But the course is really about how to be an amazing human being. Okay, so that's your current job. So, so you're running a, sort of a university-based innovation center. And is that like technical transfer from the university to the business community and vice versa? Or is it, or is it something else? It's, it's quite the opposite. It's, it's, um, it's a center for inspiration. It's a center for new ideas. Uh, new ideas about teaching, new ideas about technology, thinking between the boxes as I teach my students, connecting people. It's a uh, landing a landing space for people from industry. It's a uh, it's a launching pad for spreading new ideas. Okay, and if you were trying to, do you have like a benchmark? Is there somewhere else in the world that's doing this well that you say we want to be like this place at Harvard or MIT or Cambridge or, or something like that, or is it more something you've invented yourself? 
You know, I, I really don't think in those terms. I've seen other innovation centers and each one is unique. Um, so, you know, innovation is, is supposed to be about being, you know, yourself and different. So uh, this place is about being ourselves and different. We, we, okay. get, we get inspiration from other centers uh, that I visited, but um, we're definitely different. I think that the main point of difference is that we don't have KPIs. We don't have key performance indices. We don't have to uh, invent things. We don't have to uh, create a cash flow. Uh, we just have to be, think, share, and try and inspire students and one another. Okay, so if, if you were looking back at your last year's activity or thinking of your future, I often talk, I talked in a recent TEDx talk I gave at TEDx Tarnoff about the toothbrush test. So you, if, when you're doing your teeth in the morning, are you happy with the day ahead? And when you look back at the end of the day doing your teeth, assuming listeners that you do your teeth twice a day, as of course you should, um, then are you happy with that day? If you thought of a year's toothbrush test of your center, what would make, uh, what would make even if you don't have KPIs, I know you're a very sort of driven, ambitious person. What would be a good year for you um, in, in, the, in the life of your center? What would you have had to have done? Um, well, okay, so this was the second year of operation. It was better than the first. And because I am entrepreneurial, I'm always critical and always hoping that our next year will be even better. Um, so I guess that's the, the first answer. Um, we spent a lot of time this year on our TEDx. Uh, we had a course for students, how to speak like a TED speaker. Um, and uh, we both met uh, at the TED Summit. And um, one of the things I've learned is that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, TED, for example, has wonderful, wonderful uh, materials that uh, we can use in academia. And um, I even pitched uh, to the president, Professor Yuli Tamir, the idea of embedding TED in all aspects of our academic life. Okay, so so you've mentioned the word TED and TEDx a few times, and regular listeners to this show will know that that's a very important part of my life. Um, can you? And you've got a, a role in uh, the TED Summit that we both attended in Edinburgh earlier this year, and we're recording this, by the way, in 2019 on a planet called Earth because. For all we know, this could be listened to in some distant future when the human race has migrated to somewhere else. Um, for those um, for those listening now, in 2019 summer, we were in, a, in Edinburgh, Scotland at the TED Summit. And at that stage, I began to discover that you had a, quite an important role or a, a significant impact in something called TED-Ed. Um, so maybe you could you describe your relationship with the, the TED community, the TEDx community, and particularly the TED-Ed community, which I'm sure for many listeners will be as unfamiliar as it was to me. Um, TED Ed are lessons worth spreading. Uh, these are animated lessons. There's about 1,200 already. Uh, I was introduced to TED Ed by Roy Sternin, who uh, organized the first TEDx, which had me as a speaker. Um, so thank you, Roy. And Roy recommended me um, to apply to write a lesson um, for TED Ed. Uh, I didn't know what I was getting into. When you are accepted, uh, they uh, take you apart. Um, you have to write a script for animation of about 600 words. Uh, they help you, but they're very uh, critical in a, in a good way. Their fact-checking, I think, is superior to the top journals. Uh, they go through every word that you say and write, 
Uh, I never had this in my academic career. Uh, so the first one I wrote was about bad breath, which is a subject that I've researched for 30 years. And um, they turned it into, a, uh, into an animated lesson uh, that has been seen by almost 2 million viewers. Um, so, you know, I, I make a lot of videos and I teach a lot of courses and I write books. Um, and if you have a book or a lesson that's seen by 200 people, it's good. 2,000 people, it's great. 20,000 is remarkable. Well, this lesson was seen by almost 2 million people. And I, I've, just, I've just gone into Google and typed in your name, Mel Rosenberg and Ted Ed. And the first hit is on TED.com. Then there's the second hit is ed.ted.com. What causes bad breath? And then there's what causes body odor. Um, if uh, I'll post that link under the Facebook Live right now. But uh, is Google getting it right? Is Google finding the things that... Uh, and by the way, if anyone watching this or listening to this wants to ask a question, do type it on the, on the um, Facebook Live comments thread below and we'll try and incorporate your question into the, into the, um, into the conversation. But uh, are, the, are the things that Google led me to the things that you're most proud of on TED-Ed or are there other things there which you'd like to draw attention to? Um, I've given three TEDx talks, uh, but I'm most proud of the TED-Ed. Uh, these are the most invested from my time and also from Ted's point of view to hire these wonderful illustrators. Um, and um, until I met you at that workshop in the TED-Ed Summit, Planet Earth, Edinburgh, summer of 2019, um, I didn't have any idea how potentially valuable TED-Ed is uh, to the uh, TED world and the world world. Um, I've done three of them. Collectively, they've been seen over 5 million times. Probably it's the most significant thing I've done in the last five or 10 years. Yeah, so, so that's, that's quite something. And, and, I've, and you know, on TED.com talks, I've just posted a link. It's across the screen now, what causes bad breath? So, you know, in fact, as Chris Anderson says in one of his great TED talks about how video is like the new printing press, he talks about this positive cycle where the the benefit, the fact that there's a lot of attention on the TED platform encourages people to try harder to give great content, and the fact that the content is great draws more draws more attention there's that feedback loop that and i wasn't even a, really that aware of the significance of ted ed so if someone's not aware of ted ed at all if you're going to describe it in a, a few sentences what's the difference between a lot of people think they know the difference between ted and tedx um what's the difference between ted 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 x and ted ed or ted and ted ed what what is ted ed ted ed are lessons uh about anything uh, the people at TED, I think they like lessons that relate to science, history, literature. Uh, I've seen a lot of riddles there, and now they're doing legends and myths. But the lessons are a potpourri of everything worth, I think, teaching and learning. And then they have a very strong a backup uh, system for teachers, educators, students around the world. One of the things that surprised me is when you think about animated teaching, you think about kids, of course. It turns out that their biggest demographic are 18 to 25-year-olds. So the, the, the biggest demographic of people watching TED-Ed are college students. 
And I'm like, wow. So the talks uh, at TEDx are talks given by an individual, an idea worth spreading. Uh, he's the one doing the talking. At TED-Ed, you are a teacher doing the writing. They don't use your voice. They hire professional people. I wish they would hire me to do my own voice, but they didn't. They do a remarkable job curating your written word. Got it. And I'm just actually on the TED-Ed page, so where it's got your bad breath lesson, and they have a hyperlink alongside educator Mel Rosenberg to your TED profile. Is that quite new? Because I think when we were speaking back in Edinburgh, the, the, the creator of the content wasn't hyperlinked back to their TED profile. And so mm -hmm. under Meet the Creators, you're hyperlinked back to your profile. <clears throat> Is that something new that you wanted? Richard, it's so new that you're the first person to tell me. Okay, well, I'm going to look for the smile on your face. Um, it's about two days, two days old. Okay, so um, I have posted a link under the Facebook Live. That'll also go in the show notes. But if I read what it says on the on the TED Ed webpage, it says TED Ed animations feature the words and ideas of educators brought to life by professional animators. Are you an educator or animator interested in creating a TED Ed animation? Nominate yourself here. Then on the right hand side, it's got Meet the Creators. There's Mel hyperlink, and then there's a director. Andrew Foster, Devin Polaski is the sound designer, script editor, Alex Janida, sorry if I'm reading it, the font's rather small, Gendler, sorry, and narrator Addison Anderson. And I, I think I'd draw attention to anyone listening that sometimes people think, well, how come Ted is so elitist? How come they charge these enormous amounts of money? It costs 10,000 bucks to get a ticket to go to a main TED event, not the TED Summit where we had discounted tickets as Ted, TEDx's, but um, it's 10,000 bucks. Where does the money go? They're employing people to do things like this, which may not be may not be visible. So so if you're a – but it's, presumably it's not that easy to become a, a TED ed content creator. Is it a bit like getting a TED Talk that you people apply and there's some – uh, committee of people back in in the headquarters who's deciding who's good enough. Do you know what the process was by which you got selected? Okay, so I, I've done three lessons. I discovered in Edinburgh that there are people who have done more than three. And I've had several rejected, including one rejected just last week. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like they will take everything. But I don't know. I mean, they, they uh, the one on bad breath was accepted. And then... Uh, I did one on body odor and one on dental caries. Um, and uh, now that I see how important they are, I would, I would love to do more. Uh, it's clearly different than, than TED because it's a different uh, medium. And um, I would love to speak at TED, but, um, you know, you have to be chosen. And uh, not, neither of us knows the criteria for that. So for TED-Ed, I know the criterion, which is uh, pitch a really good lesson worth spreading. Yeah, what I'm also going to do, the reason I knew about TED-Ed before, okay, I, I, I would actually say to be that I, I think TED's criteria for a TED talk are known. They're looking for ideas worth spreading, but they, they get literally hundreds of applications a day and to get on the TED stage is is a bit like um, writing a hit novel. You know, it's no, it's not like writing a hit novel at all. Yeah. It's, like, it's like being selected by a top publisher. It's really, really. There's a huge amount of competition to get on the TED stage. And if you've done something really amazing that you're ready to talk about, like the people who got the first photographs of a black hole, 
they got on the TED stage and they had done something truly remarkable and had an idea worth spreading. But the reason I know about the the um, TED Ed project is that they have this very useful tool um, for making content around YouTube, uh, around video content. I've just posted a link to lessons from when Ray Kroc sees the first McDonald's that I've used in business school teaching. And anyone can create an account. And you can, if there's a little clip on YouTube that you can use to illustrate a point you want to teach, then you can write questions, set it to your students. And I've done that here in here in Poland. And I've, um, I've done it for different courses I teach. So, um, so TED-Ed, you can do things on TED-Ed anyway. But, so that's, what, that's one thing that you do. Uh, but if we go back a bit, um, when we got to know each other, I discovered that you had an interesting entre- entrepreneurial background. You, you had some business success in your past. Could you talk about your, your, biggest, your biggest success, which I believe, believe was nothing to do with, well, it was a mouthwash, wasn't it? Or a, was it something to do with brushing your teeth? Biggest success was a two-phase mouthwash. The work on that started back in the early 80s with uh, Dr. Erwin Weiss. That was followed by subsequent inventions and patents that led to the first two-phase mouth rinses that were introduced in Israel in the early 90s. And that, that, was, that was called Innocent, was it? That was the, the good breath? Um, innocent is, is actually a big failure. I'm guilty of failure with Innocent. The two-phase mouthwash was invented uh, under the aegis of Tel Aviv University. They owned the technology. So we licensed it first in Israel and then in Britain. And uh, recently Colgate is manufacturing it in North America. I forget the name. It's something like um, Colgate Advanced Oral Health. Actually, I I have a bottle here of the British product. Uh, We have a very strict rule about commercial promotion on our our podcast, which is it's a lack. So I'm not going to show it. You're allowed to do it. I was. I said the the rule is you're allowed to promote. Not you're not allowed to promote. No, but you see, there's no, there's no. I don't get royalties. The the, the company was sold in 2008, and uh, it doesn't do me any good. But but you know who knows they might watch this and invite you to speak at their event or something like that and pay you ten thousand bucks. You've shown it now. Okay, <laughs> it's up on the screen. So so you so you invented a mouthwash. And was that your first entrepreneurial activity or did you do something before then? No, no, no. I, I've been inventing things since I'm three or four years old. This was the only time that uh, I had an invention that succeeded like uh, in many countries around the world. But the, uh, le- the lesson to draw out of that was that the, the invention succeeded in terms of leading towards a product which was commercially successful, but it, it wasn't a thing that particularly was good for you financially. Is that correct? You didn't make much money out of that thing or what? I, I, made, I made enough money. Uh, the university in Tel Aviv gives um, 40% of its, of its earnings to the inventors. Uh, so, yes, we did make uh, some money. Uh, I'm not a super uh, unicorn uh, billionaire, but I'm, I'm doing fine. And I think, Richard, that it's, it, it's not so much about the money as the uh, what I call the nana-banana factor. And what's that? Well, you know, the crazy inventors like me who start off inventing all kinds of things that explode and, and flop and, 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 and never make it out of the garage or the laboratory. And, of course, people look askance at you and they laugh at you. And there's a, a, an international song that kids sing that goes, na-na-ba-na-na-na-na-na-na-na. 
Um, so I, I guess having having an invention that goes international is like saying to everybody, ah, I did it. You made fun of me for 30 or 40 years, but at the end of the day, I did it. I think okay. that what they call in America bragging rights. I think that's the biggest thing here, that I could do it. But if I could, may I go back? Yeah, sure. The thing you said about speaking at TED and, and having a hit book. And I, I do think that all of these things are analogous, you know, and also to having successful invention. Uh, I'm trying to break in as a children's book writer. Okay, so I, I have a mentor in the States who's teaching me. I teach courses in children's books writing. Uh, I've achieved a certain level. I'm not yet where I'd like to be. Uh, but to be a published author, for example, in the UK or in the United States, it's the same thing. It's like, it's like a hit. It's like a TED talk. It's like a, uh, an invention that you find in all of the stores. Um, so what you can teach people is you can teach people how to be really good. Um, being really good is not good enough. There's some added mystery um, that we haven't solved, and I don't know whether we ever will. Sorry, can you explain that? You said you have a what and you don't have a will. I didn't quite hear that. Okay. You can teach people the craft of anything. Uh, you can teach them to be skillful, but you can't teach them to be wildly successful. I can I can teach people how to sing like the Beatles. Can't teach people to be the Beatles. Okay, so um, I, I put up on the screen and in the show notes a link to your book company, and we'll come back to that. But before we come on to your current your current project, which is about, as I understand it, a platform to enable people to write books, particularly children's books, although they can be books about anything. You mentioned you were an inventor since you were three or four years old. And one, a question I ask everyone who's on the show is about their, their upbringing and their childhood and the extent to which their parenting um, or environment in which they grew up either led them into entrepreneurship as a reaction against what was going on around you or, either, or you were perhaps being supported by your environment. Can you, can you take our listeners through that because many of them will either have children or have children in the future. And it's always interesting to know what you think led you towards being a creative, inventive type person. Okay. So I think that there's a little bit of, of both of those, what you mentioned. In other words, uh, fighting back against something and yet having support. At the age of five, I learned three difficult things about my life. Essentially, that I would never fit in the way that society expected me to. I was a Jewish kid in a society that didn't accept me back in the 50s for being Jewish. I still think that that is extant if we look at the events of the last few days. I was left-handed. I was incorrigibly left-handed. Uh, they spent the whole year in kindergarten trying to force me to write with my right hand. But you know me, Richard. I'm a very obstinate uh, Jewish kid. They made me pray to Jesus. What, what I learned in kindergarten is that you can't trust teachers. Or shall I say you can't trust them altogether. You can't trust all teachers. I think, I think I, 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 I've got good friends who are teachers, and one of them came with me to, came with me to, uh, 
uh, Rome, where we met a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weekends ago. So I, I think you can't trust all teachers or you can't trust any teacher completely. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, both. Um, yes, I, I, I met that one. I met with a wonderful Adam in, in, um, in Rome. Well, what, what I'm saying is that you should not trust a teacher completely and a priori. And that's not because they're bad people. Some of them are wonderful people. Okay, but, so, but, but, but come back, you were left-handed, you were being made to pray when you didn't want to, and, yeah. you, were being, and you weren't fitting in. Yeah. Um, so that was going on in your school environment. And in my kindergarten. So, so I learned back in kindergarten that, hey, you know, you're never going to be the same as the other kids. Uh, you're always going to be what I call a misfish in the school system. And you can go through school getting good marks, paying attention or not in class, doing your homework. But at some level, you have to basically distrust everything that you're told. So I guess I was Popperian from the age of five. I learned about Karl Popper and the refutation only uh, much later. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to interpret that the way I would understand it, which means that the point of the academic scientific process is to try to make statements that can be rejected, falsified, and if you can if you can make a statement that could be could be proved wrong, then it might be it might be valuable. But if you're saying things that can't be proved wrong, they're hardly worth saying. Is that a fair summary of the of what of what what you what you learned at the age of five? Um, yeah, but I was only five, so you're giving me too much credit. Uh, <laughs> what I learned is that. Um, there's a lot of dogmas in the world, and you cannot take everything at face value. Uh, then I learned later you should not really take anything at face value. And what I taught my students um, when I would give them, let's say, a scientific paper to read is don't believe anything in this paper at the beginning. Refute everything. Challenge every sentence. Then you, okay. can, then you can work your way back. I was okay. lucky enough to study under Professor Joseph Agassi, who was a, uh, a uh, Karl Popper's postdoc, uh, perhaps his favorite postdoc, and uh, he taught me lessons of life later on. Very good. And, but, like, I mean, that gives you a sense of you felt you're a bit of an outsider. Um, that was at a school. Um, how did that leave in, lead into sort of creativity and entrepreneurship, though? And, and also, please reflect on your on your parents or your or your your social circle, because and these days, Israel and uh, the sort of uh, tech community, which is not where you were growing up, because you were growing up in Canada, I believe, um, is seen as a sort of hotbed of entrepreneurship. But there was a time in the first decades of Israel's existence after the British. Uh, how to put it, moved away. Um, uh, uh, the, 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 it was very state-led de development and wasn't was rather sort of socialistic. Um, so, what about your family environment and how did that outsider state status lead you into entrepreneurship and innovation? Yes, um, I, I love the way you talk about the British exodus from the Middle East in such a political terms. Um, you should be a politician, Richard. Anyway, getting back to uh, getting back to innovation, I had a very supportive family, who allowed me to be weird in many ways. Um, in in high school, I used to walk around with all kinds of badges that I would invent and work with all kinds of things. Um, I, I, because when when you're freed 
from the possibility of being like everybody else, uh, then you can be weird uh, and, uh, and yourself. Um, and when I came to Israel, when I was 18, I came for a year, um, I looked at it and it, it was a place of uh, several million crazy people um, living under constant daily pressure. Um, and uh, and I, I chose a country where everybody's weird um, and, and being different is no is really no big deal. Okay, so you said what you're saying is that Israel, to this day, is not a particularly conformist society, at least with respect to some aspects of life, because the image from afar is um, maybe not like that. But from your perspective, that's that's not fair. That in Israel, you don't you're not under pressure to fit in particularly. Well, okay, so I'm going to now. Um, first of all, Israel, for those who have visited, is nothing like what you see on the news. Um, secondly. Um, I would say that there's places in Israel like Tel Aviv, Haifa, some parts of Jerusalem, uh, and many other places where uh, we have one of the most tolerant societies in the world. Um, there's other places, there's religious areas, um, and uh, we, we of course have our fanatics. But, but generally speaking, we're a country that accepts differences. You know, we're a country of immigrants, from over 100, 100 places, different foods, different lifestyles, um, lots of tourists. Uh, and we have learned to accept um, many different kinds of self-expression. Okay. So your parents, your, your parents were supportive. Israel, Israel as a culture was supportive for uh, sort of doing your own thing. Um, if you were giving advice to someone listening who maybe is considering entrepreneurship or innovation, whether is, is that someone who has to start a company or can you, can you be innovative? Can entrepreneurship exist in institutions other than, other than the, the business startup community? And what advice would you give to someone who's thinking about that? Wow. So first of all, innovation is everywhere. Entrepreneurship is everywhere from the moment you get out of bed and decide what clothes you're going to wear uh, what mode of transportation you're going to use to get to work or school, what you're going to say to somebody, uh, what stories you're going to tell. Uh, we as human beings uh, innovate and create uh, all day long. Um, so what I tell people is what I learned from Dr. Yossi Vardi, who's one of my great mentors in the innovation field, which is that in order to be innovative, you have to overcome the um, fear of appearing ridiculous. Uh, I agree with you all. See, this, I think, is the main uh, stumbling block for young people, uh, that there's so many social conventions that they don't want to be laughed at by their peers. Uh, I, had, I was going to be laughed at anyway. So I said, you know what? I don't care. But a lot of people think that they can fit into the, to the school system or the social circles um, are going to be worried about being different. And any invention, any innovation um, is going to be weird. Probably it's going to fail and it's going to be ridiculous. When I started working on uh, bad breath at university, everybody made fun of me, including my superiors. Okay, so and, and I just read a couple of days ago, I, I'll, I'll look it up before I post the show notes, there's an article about innovative companies and mentioning how in larger companies, uh, feeling secure in your job 
is uh, the lack of fear is a vital component of a, of a creative team that if people are worried about losing their job or being fired or downgraded for for stepping out of stepping out of line then that will not be very conducive to conducive to um innovation which is slightly counterintuitive because sometimes i think the desperation makes people innovative on the other hand yes it does um but uh, i have trouble uh, with innovation at companies. Companies are essentially non-innovative uh, because they have to protect uh, what they've built up. And it's very hard for them to engender in their culture a, um, the, the, the um, scenario that you talked about, which is, yes, you should feel comfortable coming up with ideas that are probably going to fail. Yes, I mean, one thing I'd say, I'm quite often at the different pro-entrepreneurship events we we host here in Krakow in Poland, like Krakow Enterprise Mondays, Lublin Enterprise Mondays, uh, Open Coffee Krakow, the OMG Care events. I'm just mentioning those. I'll post those all in the show notes. Um, is that we get people who are working in big companies who are thinking about starting a business. And I, I say, well, do these in parallel. And, you know, if you're in the kind of company where you can pitch it to your employers that let's do this, then they may say yes. You may be happy they say no because that gives you an excuse to quit on good terms. You say, well, if you're not going to do this in-house, I'm going to leave. But you can explore the, the market take-up because, of course, what perspective really matters for innovation? Is it you as the inventor or who else? This is a little bit of education. Who else has to think it's a good idea other than you as the inventor in order for it to fly? <laughs> That's a great... I'm not going to answer that. Um, but certainly you have to believe in, in what you're doing because otherwise no one else will. Um, I, I think that the I think that the uh, dilemma we have, Richard, as educators, is the following: We both know that less than one percent of startups succeed financially. Um, so, to, to to tell a young person quit your day job, um, you know, and, and and go to work in a startup uh, is very is very dangerous. Um, I often tell people work on your ideas in the evening after your day job. Uh, and wait and see what gels. The other thing I tell uh, young entrepreneurs is that failure is success. Um, if you look at a startup or the road you're going to take as a path, a journey, an education process, um, then your road to success depends on what you do along the road, not where you go to in the end. Um, so I tell my kids, uh, work on a, uh, an MVP, get it out. Uh, don't think about the money. Don't think about the business plan. Think about doing something good for a large group of people. And then if you're lucky and the MVP is successful, uh, then you can think of perhaps being one of the super lucky people that can actually get paid for that. Yeah, I actually gave a talk at a conference. I'll post a link in the show notes about embracing rejection. It was a, a Sabre, which is a big software company dealing with airline the infrastructure of the, the travel industry have their annual talk and roll conference. And um, the, the topic was embracing rejection, that unless you're regularly being rejected, then you're not trying to go beyond the limits of what would happen anyway. So almost like the number of times you're rejected or you're, you have the fear of rejection is a good KPI or measure of how far you're pushing out of your comfort zone. So that mm -hmm. certainly that certainly rings true. and is obviously an important 
lesson. And I know you didn't you didn't want to patronize me by answering the question, but for any listeners, it's obvious it doesn't matter what you think, it doesn't matter what the investors think, it doesn't matter what your friends think. The person whose opinion is vital is that of the client and the users or the beneficiaries of your idea. Because if, if they think your idea sucks, it doesn't matter how much investment you get, sooner or later the idea will crash and burn. Um, I'm aware of the fact that um, the, uh, the patience of our listeners is unlimited, but we want to wrap this up in the next 15 or so minutes. So I'd like you to talk about the impact you want to have with your current project, the Rbox project. Um, oh. What motivated you to do that? And if you describe it in a sentence or two, and what impact do you want it to have if it goes well? Okay. So first of all, I of course agree with you. And I've written several eBooks on failure and my own failures, which I will be happy if you post now that we're talking about failure. Um, so our books is an idea that came because we wanted, my wife and I, she's a poet, we wanted to save writers thousands and tens of thousands of dollars self-publishing and then losing money and say, okay, we're going to make a platform for everyone, which is free. It's free to create a book, with page flipping. Uh, it's free to share it. It's free to read it. Uh, save a lot of money uh, and share your, your content with the world. So as far as reaching out is concerned, we're doing very well. We have over 100,000 books on 100 different topics, not only poetry and children's books, but you name it, travel, philosophy, history, um, multi-language books, uh, dictionaries, you name it, we have it. I can't even keep track because on a good day, we'll get between 100 and 300 new books. And, and what, what in, so obviously you're, you're providing authors with a way to get their ideas and content visible. What, um, what impact, is that the impact you want to have? And what's the difference between that and, for example, the Kindle? Because I think people can self-publish for free on the Kindle. How do you want to differentiate? Because, you know, it's quite a brave thing to do to go head-to-head -head with Amazon. I, I, I wouldn't normally advise that. And if that's what you're doing... I, I probably won't be the first one to say you're crazy, but I knew you were crazy anyway. So, so what, what's, the, what's the impact that you want your idea to have and aren't you stepping on Amazon's toes? The, the, the correct answer when, when somebody calls an entrepreneur crazy is just to say thank you and, and move on. And, and also, you know, if, if you're coming up against the company, then pick a big company. Um, so Amazon is, is a terrific benchmark. Here's the thing. You can write and you can publish and you can share for free. You can't sell a book on our books. You can get a donation. Now, how does Amazon work? Amazon doesn't care that much about the writers. If you are one of the million writers who are successful and many people buy your book on Kindle, CreateSpace, Amazon, what have you, then they care about you. But most of the writers, for example, of children's books, spend thousands of dollars and very often more than $10,000 self-publishing on Kindle. And they don't know the statistics, which are that most writers on Amazon sell only a handful of books. So if you were publishing a book on Amazon um, and not spending any money on it, then it would be perhaps somewhat analogous to our books. But there's another big difference. Because we're not selling the books, uh, it's all based on HTML5, um, and every letter, every word is accessible to the search engines. Um, Google can see every picture uh, and understand it, and 70% uh, of our traffic is organic. People are looking for content, and they're coming to our books 
without even knowing that we exist because we don't have enough, enough money to publish that we exist. Um, so most of the word of mouth is coming from search engines. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is that we are trying to build a community of people who want to share out of love. I wish that authors and illustrators and photographers could make more money, uh, but it's become a world where it's difficult to make any money, and at least we want people to have a voice. So what does our book say? Our book says, um, become the best author that you can. We're, we are there for you. We'll help you. We'll provide platform and free advice and what have you. Um, and we will help you on this process. Whether you're going to become the next J.K. Rowling, this is, again, beyond our capabilities. But we want to get you out there so the world will see you, even if you don't pay a penny per month. So your so your basic your your value proposition to the authors is your you're helping them get an audience an audience of people who love the idea of getting their ideas out there right yes and you know and every book supports every other book because the search engines come along every day and they see new material so if it's my new book they see a hundred new books uh, they rank the whole website and uh, this is how we have grown. And, and what sort of traffic? And what sort of traffic? I'm just looking on similar web, which isn't the best, uh, but it's the, the only way I know of instantly seeing externally what sort of traffic you're getting. What sort of what sort of numbers of visitors are you getting on? You've got a, you can measure the number of authors and the number of views. So how much traffic do you get on the website? Do you know? So now, um, like during the summer months, and we're still in the summer as far as Arbus is concerned, um, we have relatively low stats. But in months like March, uh, we will have thousands and thousands of people per day on the website. Um, and uh, we have 65,000 authors. And all of these ha authors have come to us through word of mouth. We, we don't advertise our existence. Okay. And I, I think when we were in, in uh, the TEDx weekend in Rome, the TEDx weekend Roma, you were saying you'd be interested to have an introduction to the people at Brainly who are doing free homework, homework uh, like assistance. It's, a, it's a, a company headquartered here in Krakow that I think got $50 million of investment, so quite a big scale, and they've got a lot of traffic. Well, is that right? And would, would you see people creating content for free as the, what, what would be the word, as, as their raison d'etre or their purpose as being people you'd like to be in contact with? Oh, absolutely. Most of our books are created by teachers and, 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 and students. Uh, and um, I would be really happy uh, if, um, if content was free. Um, Jimmy Wales and Wikipedia, these are my, my heroes. Um, I wanted to uh, make a website somewhere between YouTube and, and uh, Wikipedia. Uh, where um, content is freely freely shared. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll happily do that. I'll probably wait till the podcast goes up on online. But the uh, Mihal Bukowski, who's the the founder of Brainly, um, was actually on the podcast uh, a year or two ago. Um, I think it was during the summer when I was l revising for my Polish language exams. Mm -hmm. um, Richard, uh, because I just jump in. Um, the reason that our books exists after six years is because we didn't get investment. We, we've gotten maybe $20,000 of external investment. Our books cannot go broke. 
all of the other uh, digital online publishing companies that started together with me, they've almost all gone bankrupt. We started from the beginning saying, we don't have a business model, just do it. Um, I want to thank my um, genius um, CTO and co-founder, Ron Sternin, who actually made my dream come true, which is to have such a simple platform. If you write text and it becomes a page, you take a picture and it becomes a page. You can embed videos, maps, and you can also take a PDF document and it becomes a book. Okay, so so um, just to wrap up this section before we move on to TED Circles and um, ideas for the TED or TEDx stage, um, if someone's interested in this project, what should they do? Should they write to you or or should they submit a book? Or what's the best way to engage with, with your book platform? Oh, they can e email me. I answer everybody. Um, if you upload a book, make sure that I know about it so that I can shout out. Okay, so so we'll put your put your contact details. I've, I've put up the, a link on the screen and in the show notes to um, the interview with uh, Michal Borkovsky, the founder of Brainly. And once this podcast goes online, I'll I'll send him a note saying you're both alumni of this world famous podcast, and uh, maybe maybe there'll be room to collaborate there. So, um, what, well, first I will reward you handsomely, and reward you handsomely. How will you reward people handsomely? I don't know. I'll get you a. Um... A nice shave. I don't know. <laughs> That's an interesting rule. Okay, so I, I, I'm just putting up. Thank, thank you. I, I'm not doing the the reason I do this podcast, as my as my regular listeners know, is because I feel that if I'm having an interesting conversation, why not share it with a wider audience? And you know, it, it's uh, it's it's just a kind of uh, public service which is interesting well, to well, me. Let me share with my viewers that I think you're a terrific human being, and we just hung out in Rome for a couple of days. And there's a secret that I haven't told you yet. Go ahead. Based on our walks together, I've written a children's story. Well, there you go. I'll, I'll certainly share it with the project Kashmir's uh, audience when it when it's online, or you can send me a link and we'll share it in the show notes. Um, well, thank thank you for those compliments. I don't want it to turn into what in Polish is called a Towarzystwo Zajemne Adoratio, which means a mutual admiration society, although I think there is mutual admiration. What I'd like to do is to ask you to talk about what you know about TED Circles, because I, I introduced you, I believe, to the concept of TED Circles, and you're going to sign up for one. What are TED Circles? I think that TED Circles, as opposed to TEDx, TED, um, TED-Ed, and, and what have you, is a work in the, in the, in the process. Um, it's basically gathering a group of people uh, and having a discussion around a TED Talk. Right now, the folks at TED are suggesting that we look at one of several TED Talks every month. Uh, perhaps in the future, we'll be able to choose a, a talk of our own. But in uh, October, uh, thanks to you uh, and the people at TED, I'm hosting my first ever TED Circle here in Ramat Gan. Uh, and we're going to look at uh, Margaret Heffernan, her wonderful talk from Edinburgh, uh, which we were lucky enough to to actually hear. Mar Margaret Heffernan, I'll, I'll post some links to her books in the show notes. She gave a wonderful workshop at the TED Summit I attended in Canada, in Banff, about appreciation. And I, I, I liked it so much, she remembered the feedback I gave about it, which was that uh, she said, make a list of all the people who've influenced you in your life. And we did that by ourselves. And then we discussed it with our neighbor. And obviously it was family, it was friends, it was teachers, classmates, colleagues at work. And th then the next question was like, 
of the people who influenced you, how many of them know that you they influenced your life? And then, uh, and then, then the exercise was to send notes of appreciation or make phone calls of appreciation to the people who had positively influenced you, who might not know about it. And um, it, it brought a tear to my mother's eye when I passed on my appreciation to that. And I told Margaret Heffernan, who was very pleased that uh, I appreciated her workshop because it created that kind of emotional connection with my with my mother. And I, I so she's a great author. And TED Circles right now are in what you might call closed beta they're piloting it with people from the tedx ted community and i think from the beginning of 2020 it's going live and is very ably supported by alisa hampton and probably some other people at TED headquarters we don't know about um what's that go with you're waving your hands what what you're just echoing that no i said whom we thank profusely yes yes no no it, it's really nice as a slack channel so and I've, I've done one i'm doing one more in october and, and certainly Sorry, in November, not October, and certainly one in November, and probably more. Um, it's a really nice circle, and if you think of it as a book club based around TED content, as yes. opposed to as opposed to be related to the stuff we talk about and teach, which is uh, how do we try and inspire our young students to deal with this increasingly um, difficult world of computers and robots, and uh, continually being replaced by humanoid, human-sounding, human-looking beings, uh, how are we going to survive and thrive in the future? My, my contention, and this is why it is so meaningful to me, is that we have to, and not only that, also the World um, Economic Forum and others, that we have to concentrate on those skills um, which are the ones that we can do better than computers. That's a very, very reasonable point. The, the, the point I, I, I like to make is that I think in create, I mean, as uh, Einstein said, um, he's standing on the shoulders of giants, that one idea leads to another. And I'm posting a link to a wonderful TED talk from one of TEDx talk, uh, for Alina Malochas from one of my TEDx's. She's a, a school teacher. I, I think you'll like her her talk very much, um, just like how one idea leads to another, that if she'd plunged in with her idea of getting her kids to do TEDx talks in her school in one hop, it wouldn't have happened. But by taking smaller steps, listening to talks, summarizing them, discussing them, learning them by heart, it, it led to great progress. And I think the idea stimulating creativity is partly by getting people who are interested in ideas um, together and talking about them. And I'll have a very quick shout out for the Chatty Cafe project where I said this is a project where one of our future speakers, Alex Hoskins, is coming to Krakow to talk about the Chatty Cafe project, which is the idea that there should be a table in a cafe where if you sit at that table, it's you're fine with speaking to strangers. And you said that in Israel that wouldn't necessarily be necessary because that's the Israeli culture. Can you can you share that thought with our listeners? Um, I think one of the um, aspects of, of Israeli entrepreneurship innovation that's looked over is our coffee shop uh, behavior. You're sitting in a coffee shop in Israel, but you're also eavesdropping on other people's conversations, and you're also being eavesdropped upon. It's not uncommon for somebody to come and say, oh, you know, I had the same problem with my Dell, and this is how I solved it. 
uh, or I, maybe I can help you. I know somebody, or um, or just to turn to somebody the next and say, "Have you ever heard of of this?" Um, so this open uh, openness in um, coffee houses, which you'll find all over the country, um, I think is a great connector. Um, of course, Israelis are competitive, and of course, uh, we all want to succeed. But we do here. We have here a strong ethic of helping one another. Okay. Okay. So I, I posted a link to the uh, Chatty Cafe scheme, scheme. And the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is about ideas you have that you think are worth spreading. I know you're considering doing a TEDx. I'm not sure you've got a license right now, but it's it's on your sort of future to-do list to consider doing. But um, do, if you were invited to give a, a TEDx talk. Um, for example, here at TEDx Kashmir, uh, here in Poland next year. What ideas do you have that you think are worthy of the stage that are worth spreading that, you know, perhaps you've had an experience in your life which leads you to a different take on the idea or you've got an original idea that not many people know about? Do you, could, do you have any particular ideas that you, you feel you'd like to talk about from the TEDx stage? Mm-hmm. I've just participated in a, an 11-minute uh, documentary on the importance of making mistakes in innovation. And our first scene uh, was shot in, in a supermarket. And I found myself wandering around the supermarket and just picking things off the shelf and then realizing that most of the things that we use every day were, were actually invented by chance, by happenstance, um, and the discovery stories are incredible. Um, so if I were to pitch an idea right now, it would be let's turn our supermarkets into museums of discovery. Bring children in with their parents uh, and ask them to choose products and then to have them look back and discover how these products were actually discovered, invented. In many cases, wonderful surprises await us. Um, for example, story of how tea bags were invented or saccharin. Um, each product in the supermarket, and there are between 40 and 80,000 products in a given supermarket, each one has a story or multiple story of discovery. Yeah, that's a very, that's a very nice idea. I, I, if I were um, curating that, I would be looking for the originality. There's a very good TED talk by Tim Harford called Trial, Error, and the God Complex, which I was privileged enough to see back in 2011. I'm just posting that in the show notes, in, in the comment thread, um, talking about the importance of trial and error and in creating products. And if I go to one of those cheap pound store, dollar store type places where they're selling things possibly below their cost of production, I say that that is, these are the examples of businesses that didn't work out, you know, some strange device that failed, but, you know, it, it, before it fails completely, the, 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 the wreckage is sold off cheap. But, um, but certainly um, uh, the, the importance of recognizing that not everything works out and that failure is a stepping stone on the road to success is, is, is vital. Well, Mel, we're coming up to the end of our time. Is there anything we haven't discussed that you'd like to share with our listeners before I, I wish you the 
the rest of your day. I, I have to, I, I have to go and vote. It's uh, election day today. I'm not going to talk about how I vote, not only because I'm not allowed to, but because it's private. But I do have to vote. It's the first responsibility of a citizen of a free country to vote. So please vote if you are listening, whoever you vote for. Um, and I, I want to have a, a lunch with my daughter, so I have to hurry on. But what what message do you have for our listeners? Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? I just want to um, say thank you. Uh, one of the incredible things of going to uh, international conferences is meeting wonderful people. Uh, and in uh, my case, I met you. And thank you for this uh, opportunity to share ideas with you and, uh, and your listeners and viewers. And um, have a wonderful life, everybody, until we abandon Earth for other planets. Okay, well, that's quite a, uh, I appreciate the thanks. Thank, thank you also for sharing your time. I'm going to click on end broadcast now, which gives us a couple more seconds before it winds down. So Project Kashmir listeners, please feel free to leave comments, links under this show, feedback, suggestions of future viewers. And I'll sign off with goodbye from, from Poland. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode, and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals, it's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible, because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here. But, but the, the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now. Not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but, but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger, 